Good afternoon. I will say that was a very enjoyable lunch. Uh, sometimes it's difficult for me to find food that, that, I, that I can eat, and there was a lot that I could eat, so that was great. But uh, in feasting, in a wonderful physical meal, let's not forget that man shall not live by bread alone. Our text this afternoon for part two of the service is Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, 2, and the first word of verse 3. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. I'll begin by reading again, and then prayer, followed by our procession. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, many are the works of your hands. Rich are the works of your ministry on this earth. For even by your miraculous works of healing, you not only demonstrate your prophetic authority, but you have demonstrated even in the healing of the man born blind that you are the God who removes the blindness of the sinners and the blindness of their hearts to seek after you. For every one of your works, Christ Jesus, was so purposeful that in them lie rich spiritual blessings which we may contemplate on and find to our own beatitude. We bless you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Having read this verse, you might be wondering why I didn't choose a longer text. You might be thinking, there really isn't much to say here. You saw the crowds, went up a mountain, sat down, the disciples came to him, he preached, and I probably did you a greater service by cutting off half a good chunk of the final verse and just use the word blessed. Uh, I think your pastor has probably taught you better than that, and I, I wouldn't expect any of you to actually think that. There are so many implicit connections in the scriptures concerning the mission of Christ Jesus that not only everything he says, but also in everything he does, we are to meditate upon such and use other parts of Scripture to give light unto these parts which may seem so ordinary to us. 
Brothers and sisters, I'll submit to you, there is nothing ordinary about Jesus climbing the mountain to preach the Sermon on the Mount. There's absolutely nothing ordinary about it. So, let's make a few observations. First, you notice that Jesus saw some crowds and had compassion. Throughout the ministry of of Christ Jesus, crowds of many common folk would would follow him. And, And you would see in various texts of scripture his kindness towards them. You would see very frequently he would perform miracles of healing. And those miracles would authenticate him as a prophet. In other words, show everyone that this this man, he speaks of God. But they didn't just do that. Because in a really, in a true sense, even many Old Testament prophets perform some of these. But there is a difference. Let's first consider his compassion. Mark chapter 6, verse 34, you may turn if you please. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Likewise, you don't feel the need to turn here since I'll jump around a couple times. Uh, Matthew Chapter 9, verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. We realize that Christ's compassion on his people was a critical reason for the incarnation. Let's put it this way. Though man, by virtue of justice, which we spoke of in the last sermon, owes God all of this, owes God worship, owes God obedience, and the like, the reverse is not necessarily true. You see, God demonstrated his goodness in creating you, And that's a privilege that you cannot undermine. You cannot undervalue the privilege of God creating you. There is a true sense in which there is the love of God applied to you just because he created you. It is a privilege to live. We have no right to live apart from the God who grants it. Likewise, God owes no one redemption. If God, in his pleasure, had chosen not to have compassion for whether the crowds or whether you as a sinner, at most justice would still be served in your judgment. Yet, according to his own freedom, he was merciful not only to you as created Also to you as created in the image of God, you share a privilege of being in the likeness of God that other creatures don't share. 
There's, there's a gratitude that creatures, us, like us, we owe God that a, another creature, like a lion or a sheep, doesn't share, cannot share. The capability of gratitude is not in them. But the capability of gratitude is in us. Second, Jesus ascended into the mountain. Now, this is not an endorsement of a hipster rock climbing evangelical church of Southern California. This is not an endorsement of that. Rather, he is making several points of truth that other parts of scripture can enlighten us in his ascent to the mountain. The first thing to note is that when you see the word mountain in the scriptures, I believe most of you are probably already trained to do this, you're sensitive to the fact that a mountain is a temple. Ezekiel chapter 28, this one I'll have you turn to if you please, verse 13. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13 and 14. We are going to see a description of Eden itself, the Garden of Eden. It's going to be described as a mountain and it's going to have other features that the temple of God has. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli. Oh, see that thing again from Ezekiel chapter 1? By the way, just a side note, every single one of these jewels, colors, everything, everything has significance. Not necessarily unpacking this right now, but as you saw earlier, you might have to search other parts of scripture to identify what that significance is. I'll continue. The turquoise and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on that day that you were created. They were prepared. You were, an, you were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. The words of David in Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? You see the connections between a holy hill, a mountain, a temple, a place of worship. Now let's look at the idea of ascending to this holy hill, this mountain, this temple, this place of worship. This one I may ask you to turn if you so please. Please turn to Psalm 24. Namesake for the title of this sermon. Which I should have given you. It's who shall ascend to the mountain of the Lord. Psalm 24 says this. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands... And a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully, 
He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. You see, for whatever reason, not whatever reason, prophetic reason, David thought that it would be only a holy man who might ascend to the mountain of the Lord. Now, granted, uh, the assumption of your amazing memories when I preached a sermon two years ago or, th- two or, or so, um, I don't know if you remember, if some of you may remember, but we reflected on Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 uh, being a combined psalm, and the blessed man in Psalm 1 is the same in whom the people of God are blessed in Psalm 2. In other words, that blessed man of Psalm 1 we concluded back then was the Lord Jesus Christ. This is no accident. The scriptures are giving the divine word of God, prophesying the Christ to come. And even this psalm is for the Christ, is for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his own encouragement of his ministry. We forget often that Jesus Christ also has a human nature. And in that human nature, he has to learn the scriptures where he might discover his mission. Wherein he reads the words of this psalm, who may ascend into the mountain of the Lord or the hill of the Lord. And he might do exactly that. In contrast, Isaiah chapter 14 Verse 12 through 15, you need not turn there. I'll just read it in contrast. Speaking of the son of perdition, the devil. Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So you see that ascending motif. Who can ascend to the mountain but the one who is holy and pure? It's certainly not the enemy of enemies. It is interesting that in context in Isaiah, this is ascribed to the king of Babylon, but then we also make that connection to that same king of Babylon, the book of Revelation. It is intended to speak to him. It is custom for the teachers of the synagogue in Jesus' day to sit and teach and to expound the law of Moses. And it is no accident that in their attempt to explain the law of Moses, they find themselves not as one who sits over or has authority over the law of Moses, but one who sits under and explains. 
There is another way in which one may sit over the law of Moses, and that is the manner in which Jesus does. Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 4, are as follows. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them without so much as a finger. But when Jesus sits on the very mountain and is about to preach blessedness, he has now uncovered what the law of Moses, 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 Moses points to, but does not grant in and of itself. You see, when we think of the law of Moses, we're easily tempted to consider all of the Old Testament Levitical laws. But there's another kind of shortening of the law of Moses, which can just be referred to as the Ten Commandments. In other words, you might think of it as the moral law of God. In fact, our catechisms say that the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. You see, when Jesus pronounces blessedness in the first word of the Sermon on the Mount, it is not just the law which he is preaching. You see, in this text, Jesus is preaching both law and gospel. Interestingly enough, something similar happens in Proverbs chapter 8. I might ask you to turn there if you please. Proverbs chapter 8. We don't have time to fully unpack this uh, today, so I'm just going to offer you my conclusions after reading through it, at least relevant to the sermon. Proverbs chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 6 through 11, and then we'll skip over uh, from verse 22 through 36. So 6 through 11. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things, for my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than the choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I'm going to skip over so we get the identity of who this wisdom is who is speaking in Proverbs 8. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth before creation itself. This wisdom is that which was brought forth. Before the mountains were set, I'm sorry, um, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth 
Older Christian writers would identify this very clearly as the doctrine of eternal generation. Okay? We can't unpack this very much, but eternal generation is that act which is the Son of Man, which or what makes, sorry, the Son of God. In other words, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and there was never a time when he did not exist. And this is the identity of wisdom itself. It's the Son. Let's read a little bit more about what the Son does in creation. While he has not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set a sea for the sea its boundary, so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. There I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. I think at this point, for anyone to say this is just a personification of wisdom, we're missing, we're missing it. We're talking about the very son of God himself. Okay? Um, but let's see how he concludes in verse 32 through 36. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are all those who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. And he who sins against me injures himself. And all who hate me love death. This is wisdom speaking. This is God the Son speaking. This is God the Son speaking from ancient days of blessedness. Okay, so what do we make of this? Some contemplations. Some contemplations on first, the work of Christ. Jesus says in John 16, verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see, this, the helper, we know, is the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And I continue in verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It is interesting that... that uh, these acts of wisdom and convicting the world of righteousness, it's a singular act of the triune God. In other words, God is doing this. God is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You see, behind this text is the doctrine of the ascension of Christ. Now, if you recall in the Gospels, after Christ was raised from the dead, he walked with his disciples. He taught them. And finally, what happens? He ascends into heaven, and, and from him and the Father come forth God the Spirit. The Spirit then proceeds to the world. This is no accident. You see, 
This is the messaging he's giving all this time. Our text this morning was the Sermon on the Mount, well before any of this actually happened, well before the subsequent uh, the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glory, well before his heavenly ascension, well before his sending of the Spirit, well before the fact that the Spirit will now convict the world concerning sin and righteousness, provide, providing blessedness. He's doing this, the very act of ascending and preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he is teaching us about his mission, and he's actually accomplishing something. What he's accomplishing for the Christian is blessedness. He's preaching it, and he's doing it. Okay. So, we know that Christ himself is the blessed man. We know from other parts of Scripture that the blessed man meditates on the law day and night. We know from Scripture that the blessed man is always in obedience to God's law. But that's not all that Scripture says about blessedness. It also says in Romans 4.8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Blessedness is this package deal, I think, if you've figured it out by now, of the works of God. But what is it? I've used this word so many times. What's the difference between a blessing and being blessed? Is there a difference? Certainly there is. You see, when our theological forefathers saw this word blessedness, they were attuned to this fact that there is a broader conversation of what blessedness is, even from the philosophers. One of them, one of the philosophers that is, has identified blessedness, and another word he translates for it is happiness. Okay? That's a valid, that's a valid translation of blessedness. If you said happiness instead of blessedness, you'd be speaking the same thing. You'd be talking about the same thing. Well, I don't know about this, but, but when, you, when you hear what the world has to say about happiness, I don't think we get the right idea. I, many of you probably have seen The Pursuit of Happiness, uh, the movie uh, Will Smith and all that, and, and you see what happens in The Pursuit of Happiness. I'm, I'm sorry, spoiler alerts, whatever. Uh, but basically, he's, you know, he, he's, uh, he's on the road. He's trying to make ends meet with, for his son and himself. And uh, he, 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 re- he gets this crazy finance gig. And I don't understand all that. So something happens and he gets real rich. It, it's hard road on the way. He's apparently a brilliant guy, whatever, right? And um, that phrase, the pursuit of happiness... It's actually uh, taken from our founding fathers. Um, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What the movie gets wrong, completely wrong, is that Will Smith's happiness consisted of landing that super awesome position in finance, or whatever the thing is. Okay, And he has now made it. And now he's able to provide for his son, right? And that's the American dream. 
right? That is not what Jefferson had in mind. That is not the kind of happiness that even pagan philosophers had in mind, such as Aristotle. This is not a sermon on Aristotle, but he gets a plug. Even for Aristotle, pleasures found in these physical things, he understood them to be limited. So he actually offered the virtues of prudence, temperance, justice, and courage, the ones we spoke of in the last sermon. And he thought, that's, that. you know, if you pursue these virtues, prudence, temperance, justice, and courage, right, that's a more meaningful life than one who runs after the riches of this age, wealth, honor, glory, even health, okay, as if those are like the main thing in life. Um, Aristotle was only partially right. See, there was something missing in Aristotle. And that's something that is supplied by the gospel. You see, what Aristotle was missing was three other virtues. Those being faith, hope, and love. On a side note, historic Reformed writers often had the task of writing a commentary on Aristotle's book, The Nicomachean Ethics. That book is basically about the virtues that we talked about in the first sermon, detailing them more. Okay? And they often wrote commentaries, uh, their agreements, their disagreements, their corrections. But they understood that when we think of both the natural law, we need to, we need to speak in these categories because for them these were real categories. But they also saw a deficiency. You see, though we may be just in all our dealings before men, if done so out, without faith, hope, and love, we've still fallen short of the glory of God. That's one of the things that the gospel provides is faith, hope, and love. Now, what, when you think of briefly, like, what is faith, right? It's, we're tempted to think of faith as, uh, as like, okay, my, my ability to resist adversity, that's faith. This is, a, this is a faithful person that I know. And you know what? He, he, he's gone through tragic moments, okay? And, and, and he, he resisted uh, falling away from Christ. That's faith to them. That's faith to, in, as far as what a lot, a lot of people think that faith is. You know what? No. Um, the, you know, a classical definition of faith, at least the acts of faith, include three things. Knowledge, agreement, and trust as far as a body of content. We, we downplay this, but, but often we, ha- we have these things called creeds and confessions, for instance, right? Creeds and confessions have this content in them. They cover so many things, everything from creation to redemption, glorification, resurrection, all the like. You see, when we are exercising faith, we have in mind particular truths and forms that we engage with. So in other words, we don't conceive faith apart from 
resting and receiving of the things of Christ. Both everything, and everything from creation out of nothing to the future glory to come, A to Z. You see, when we have, our under, when we have an, an accurate understanding of what faith is, it ceases to be about the question of endurance in and of itself. It's not, it's not about endurance, not necessarily. But for the Christian who has a great faith in the midst of great sins in which he continues to commit, he has in mind the doctrine of the Trinity, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of the resurrection and the life to come, and more. See, that is what a faithful, a Christian who is full of faith, has his heart on. Yes, there is adversity. And yes, in adversity, we contemplate the goodness of God and his providence. That's part of it. But it's a lot simpler than the world is making it sound. It's interesting. I do, I do like when some churches do this when they recite a creed, right? Because now what they're doing is collectively and corporately confessing the faith delivered to the saints. And that, is, and that I think is very valuable. But it is not just faith. The other virtue that Aristotle was missing was the virtue of hope. Hope in the promises to come. Hope in the promises of a resurrection. The Old Testament saints had hope in the promises of a coming Messiah and of the resurrection. We reflect upon the Messiah who has now become, the, our, as a part of our body of faith, and now we look to the resurrection to come and the life everlasting. The other thing Aristotle was missing is the question of love. Jesus says, he who loves me obeys my commandments. And we understand that in the exercising of love, the act of, the act of love proceeding from one, uh, would keep one moving towards the freedom in the law of God. What's the point of all this? You see, if God were not the object of faith, hope, and love, if we were not to love God and love neighbor for the golden rule, what's left for us? We go back to the, the question of the man who was raised, got good grades, got his job at Google, got married. Then what? He's, he's got a few options, okay? He could pursue wealth, right? This is the man who, who now can spend all of his, of his living daylight into amassing the greatest empire this world has ever seen, rivaling that of Elon Musk, okay? There is no satisfaction in that. There, there, is, there is no amount of money that can provide that kind of satisfaction. It doesn't end 
You get some, you want more. Have you heard the stories of those who win the lottery? How long does it last? Now, money itself is not evil. Don't get me wrong at all, okay? It's a tool. Money's a tool. A tool for what? Well, for a lot of good things. It's a tool for you to be just with your family with. It's a tool to enjoy some good things of creation with. It's an important tool to support your church with. Pastors worthy of double honor even says. It's, it, the support of, of your pastor is one of the most critical things you could do with your money. But you see, the world doesn't necessarily think that way. If they, if they, provide, if they provide donations, what will they get? A, ta- a tax deduction or uh, adver- marketing advertisement. That's not what even, don- even donating money should be about if you were donating money for any reason. You see, unlike animals, we need not have attachment to things like honor, the respect of other men, and wealth. These may be tools for us, but they're not necessarily things we aim for because they do not provide happiness. They, they, so then the question is, what does provide happiness? One of our uh, popular catechisms, um, I believe it's a Westminster catechism, one of the questions is, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Believe it or not, all the virtues are in that catechism. When we're talking about end, the word end in that catechism, what we mean is purpose, right? Uh, for instance, uh, if you, you may have a pet dog at home, right? Uh, what does a good dog do? A good dog obeys the commands of his master, right? A good dog is there to provide comfort when you need. A good dog barks when people are coming at the, intruders are coming at the door. Why do we call a dog good? Because it does its purpose. It's do, it does what it's supposed to, right? A good phone, cell phone for that matter, right? Uh, this is not perfectly analogous. It, just go with it. Uh, a, a good cell phone, you don't have to charge it three times a day. So if you, have, if you do have to charge your phone three times a day, it's probably not a good cell phone. Sorry, it is what it is, right? A good cell phone at this point probably has a good camera, right? Here's the purpose, right? So here's, at the end of the day, a good thing does what it's supposed to do does what it's created to do, and does it well, okay? If, hypothetically, there was a happiness for the cell phone, it would be granted to the cell phone after the, after the cell phone did everything it was supposed to do right, okay? If there was a blessedness for the cell phone, it'd be working just the way it's supposed to, supposed to work. Same with the dog. If there was a blessedness for a dog... But you find that, right? Like, like when, it, when a dog is raised, raised right and, and, and does what it's supposed to do, it seems to thrive. When you provide for a plant, nutrition, water, sunlight, appropriate sunlight, you know, soil, all that stuff, when you provide all of those things, it thrives. You know why? Because it was made to do that. A, a plant was made to be fruitful. It, it was made to grow in this way. You see, there's something for us, too. 
We were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If we depart from that, we are departing from the blessedness that comes with that. Here's the truth. There's no blessedness unless we take refuge in Christ. That's what Psalm 2 says. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay? But blessedness, though, though you're not getting it apart from Christ, okay? Blessedness is something that has reference to all aspects of the salvation of God. We can speak of it in terms of regeneration, where God has changed your heart, okay? What has actually happened is by the work of the Holy Spirit, God has granted you who have believed faith, hope, and love. He's granted these things, enabling you to believe, enabling you to hope, enabling you to love. And you know what? Every time you're here at church, and even today at the Lord's Supper, in the preaching of the word, the very elements of worship in general, broadly speaking, even in the singing, you know what's happening? You're growing in faith, hope, and love. God has ordained these things which we call the means of grace by which you, Christian, will grow in faith, hope, and love. So critical is the Christian Sabbath. So critical is the need not only to be a church, but using the whole day in exercises of public and private worship. It's for your good. Do you want to grow as a Christian? God gave it to you. He gave you a really helpful means to do that. Yes, your, your weekly devotions are great. There's nothing like this. There's nothing like right now. Here's the deal. As we move towards the virtues, as even Aristotle has said, you would move towards beatitude. Okay? We call that sanctification. So though God has provided a new life in you, in regeneration, the time when he saved you, personally, now, you have a path to walk forward, a path of freedom to walk in, where you may thrive like the plant which grows and is fruitful, like the dog which is obedient to its master, and way better than any of that, because they don't even experience the degree to which that thriving you may experience as a Christian. There, there is a serious benefit which is called happiness, blessedness, beatitude, for the Christian that no riches, no honor, no glory can provide. A satisfaction in Christ, begun in regeneration, continuing now in your sanctification, and before the face of God in glory, to have a vision of God there, which you could actually see face to face because now that you don't have sin blinding you, one of the freest things that a Christian can have is the inability to sin. That's promised in glory. You see, when Jesus was teaching, blessed, all of that is intended. All of that is intended. As, as a Christian move towards, moves towards the law of God, moving towards faith, hope, and love, the graces of the gospel. This is something you get to enjoy more now. Our confession speaks of 
assurance of the, the assurance of the Christian growing, and I want to I don't want to unpack this too much, but simply saying that a lot sometimes some of our struggles, as far as our Christian life, are are things because we're, we we can sometimes avo- run away from the beatitude for which God has created us. Okay, um, He's created this path for us. Not only in ascending in the Sermon on the Mount, to the mountain, that mountain, but in his very heavenly ascension, enabled this for the Christian. There is a treasure. There is a treasure of blessedness and beatitude that Christ Jesus has afforded for his people. And it's nothing like this world has to offer no matter how glorious it is, no matter how glamorous it is. It's very attractive. Commercials, billboards, all of it, right? Um, We're not meant to live like other animals. We're meant to live like something else, rational creatures made in the image of God. You see, in our sanctification, we are to, one, live well. Live well meaning grow in faith, hope, and love, okay? Uh, John Owen calls this Vivification, big word, but meaning having constantly having the breathing of new life into us. Right? It's so ordinary as you partake in the ordinary means of grace, not at all ordinary. The effect is not ordinary. It, there's something that you experience here, the growth in faith, hope, and love, Christian. Money can't buy that. You're proud, you know, you who... Like, I've struggled with this myself, so I'll explain. Like, I don't know if some of you struggle with this, but like, one of my biggest struggles in my early Christian walk was was trying to um, impress my unbelieving family, saying that, oh, me becoming a Christian is not a, you know, it doesn't take away from the success, which the world views as success and things like that, okay? Subtle things, subtle thoughts, It's meaningless. That's not an end. That is not, that is not a goal that I ought to pursue. Yes, I'd like, yes, honor your father and mother, even if they're unbelievers. That's, that's, that's part of what it means to now, the second point, do well in sanctification. Owen calls that mortification. You see, as we are mortif- mortified in killing the remaining corruptions of the flesh in this life, as we are vivified, breathing new life into us, we move towards this beatitude, the end, the end towards, which, towards which God has created us. Fully realizing that we're, we're not going to make it fully this life. It's granted to us fully in glory, but that doesn't mean it's not a reality right now. The biggest mistake is to think that the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, and the rest of Scripture, because that's not the only place where Beatitudes are, the biggest mistake is to think all of it is future glory. No. It's now, it's tomorrow, and it's the heavenly time to come. And new creation. It's for all of it. Someone says this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. This is for you. This is describing Christ. In Christ, this is for you. Colossians 3 says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, pronouncing his beatitude. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You want this blessedness. There's nothing else the world has to offer in comparison, and nor can you buy it with anything else. It's one of the greatest treasures that God has offered us creatures. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you who are the blessed Holy Trinity, you've created us for a created blessedness in the likeness of your own. You've created us for ends and purposes, both natural and supernatural. Natural for the sake of of prudence, temperance, justice, and courage upon which the very Ten Commandments are built. Supernatural in the case of faith, hope, and love which would not be provided to us or afforded apart from the gifting of the Holy Spirit. The world offers solutions that all fail. They pale in comparison to the riches which you offer to the Christian in Christ Jesus. As beatitude has sprung forth, blessedness sprung forth from the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the scriptures, we pray that you would bless us with the means of grace this day, growing us in faith, hope, and love, that we might not only glorify you in the obedience of your law, but enjoy you forever in that very beatific vision. You, Lord, are the blessed Lord, and we in you may be your blessed people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.